Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We've been running conversations with some of the best guitar players in the game for over a year now. Not only has this been amazing for myself and A.L. to learn from, but it's been amazing for us to share this vast knowledge with all of you. If you enjoy what we're doing, then please share us with your friends, and we especially love iTunes reviews. Remember that you can tag us if you want to share the podcast on your Instagram. You can find me at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S. And you can find Al at Al Levy URM Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. Always remember that we will never charge you for this podcast. So please keep listening and enjoying. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on to this week's guest. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Al Drake, who is a guitar player, vocalist, songwriter, and most recently a Twitch streamer from the UK, best known for his work with thrash legends Evil. With one solo record, Old Rake, and seven albums with Evil, the most recent Helen Leash record through Napalm Records, all is a veteran of the metal scene as well as a pioneer in modern thrash metal. I introduce you, Al Drake. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you for having me. Hello, traitor. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very sorry. <laughs> I'm not even from Yorkshire. I just thought it'd be funny to say it. <laughs> yeah, it's, York, Yorkshire people have a, a lot of pride in being from Yorkshire. So the fact that I've moved away is probably a big deal to some people. <laughs> and I moved to Yorkshire. Oh. All the way from London. Yeah. It's lovely here, isn't it? It is. Very nice. How far away are the two places from each other? It's borders. Yeah, it's just, it's like, a, where I live is like a 45-minute drive from where I used to be in Huddersfield. Just a grenades toss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Well, do they have, like, different sports teams that compete and everyone hates each other as a result or is it just shit talking not really i mean i think it all goes back to the war of the roses between the 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 white rose and the red rose with the henry the eighth and all of that but for some reason i grew up thinking that yorkshire won the war of the roses <laughs> <laughs> i don't know why but they didn't <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know why either yorkshire is way bigger than lancashire yeah yeah Oh well. Oh well. <laughs> so two people who would normally be at war coming together for a conversation about guitar, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> well, actually, I'm not from either Lancashire or Yorkshire, so I think that we'd be fine anyway. Oh, okay, good. Okay, good. <laughs> Glad to hear that. So you mentioned in the pre-interview that you've gotten to a level of playing that you're extremely comfortable with and don't really feel the need to push past that point. I want to hear about that some because most people I know feel like they always suck forever <laughs> like it doesn't matter how good they are they always feel like they suck so first of all how is it even possible to feel comfortable and how do you make sure that you're not resting on your laurels um I think firstly I, I would like to say I, I sometimes do think I suck as well you know I think everyone has okay. that <laughs> You know, sometimes I'll pick up the guitar and think, God, I suck. 
you know, it's because I, I don't get a lot of time to play anymore. So with two kids and everything. And um, in terms of being comfortable where I am, I, it was kind of forced upon me in a way in that I used to play between six and 10 hours a day when I was younger uh, to the point where I wouldn't eat any food. I would literally forget to eat. And then Eval got really busy and we got signed and went on tours and Eva got so busy that I just didn't have time to learn more on the guitar anymore. It was just a case of warming up and playing. And not that I didn't want to learn more. It's just life got too busy to dedicate as much time anymore to it. So I just thought, look, what, what I do sounds pretty cool. So I'm happy with it. I'm not going to try and be a Steve Vai or Jason Becker or anything. Because I'm just, I don't think that's in me. I've tried some of their stuff and it's like a, a virtuosic level that I don't have the time to put in to, to get there. So I've accepted that. Like, this is what I do. I'm comfortable with it and I'm happy. You know, I don't want to put any more pressure on myself because I remember when I was younger, I would see other guitarists who were amazing and I would start to feel bad about myself thinking, oh, I wish I was that good. Yeah. The older I got, the less it mattered. It, it just doesn't matter. He put lots of time in and I put less in. That's, that's it. <laughs> Plus, it sounds to me like you knew exactly what your musical goals were at a certain point. So it sounds to me like you were able to get enough skill to where you're, I guess, you had formed your own identity and were able to competently execute what was required for the job at hand. Yeah, I, I would say that I... I I feel like I found my own, dare I say, voice. But I think more important is the rhythm side of things and writing songs. It's I, I put more stock in writing a riff than I do playing lead guitar because the riff and the song is what is the most, that's the most important thing. The solo is just kind of like the, you know, the icing on the cake. It's just, I, I, I found my voice in the solos, but my meat and potatoes is the riff and the song. And that's what I spend the most time on. The solo is kind of like a, right, we're in the studio now. I need a solo. I'll spend two <laughs> days writing it at last minute, you know? <laughs> uh, a man that thinks the same way as me. I think we could be friends. <laughs> Except you don't even play solos. Nah. <laughs> I, had the, I had the same I had exactly the same realization as uh all here like the amount of time that I'd spend writing a solo I could write a whole song you know yeah. so and the amount of parts that a solo has is a whole song yeah <laughs> you know if it's a good solo it is like a composition in and of itself yeah I've, I've spent months on solos before and it's I've got to a point where I just couldn't get past that note and it's been two months later I'll come back to it and think Oh yeah, just do that, and it works. And it's, it's taken me months at times. It sounds to me like you don't feel like that's worth it necessarily. No, it is. It's just um, I've said this in a few interviews where I, I look at things like they're already written, and I'm trying to figure out what it is. I'm not trying to make something up. I'm just playing and playing and playing until I figure out what the part is. I know that sounds stupid, but I view it like interesting. If I don't know a parallel dimension somewhere, the song is already written. And I'm trying to find out what it is. And, I, and I'm, I'm not happy with just like putting anything down and be like, yeah, that'll do. It has, to, it has to be the song that I'm trying to figure out, if that makes sense. <laughs> That's a really interesting point of view. 
if it's coming in from another dimension, how do you know <laughs> when it's right? For lack of a better word, I, I fall in love with it. As soon as it works, I'm like, yes, that's exactly what it needs to be. And then anything else won't be good enough. So I think that tells me that that's the, the correct song. <laughs> that's a really interesting way to look at it. It's a very positive way. It almost makes the process seem less overwhelming when it comes to writing whole records. If you've got the mindset of it's already finished, I just need to find it. That's way easier in a mindset to think of than I've got to write 12 fucking songs in. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's more of a drive. It makes me think, oh, I still need to figure that song out instead of, oh, I've got a song to write. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's more, it's, it drives me more, I think, looking at it like that. That's smart. I might have to adopt that. <laughs> the thing is that I'm not sure that anyone has figured out. I've looked, maybe I've missed it, but there's no real understanding of what creativity even is out there. There's a lot of theories about it, but I mean, creativity is kind of um, in the same realm as consciousness. People know that we have it and they reap the benefits of it, but they still don't quite get how it even happens in the first place or what it even is. And so your philosophy on writing kind of acknowledges the fact that we really have no fucking clue where this shit's coming from. Exactly. Yeah. I, I do think it's, I don't want to get too philosophical, but I think it is some kind of cosmic force that like, everything is made up of vibrations. Music is, everything is. So I think music has some meaning in the whole universe, but who knows what that is. If anyone wants to know what that is, it's called cymatics. And that's for our listeners. And it's a very interesting read. Have you ever read about that, Al? I'm glad you didn't just say Dianetics. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I'm just really glad that's not what you said. No. no. I'm just glad you didn't say that. No, I'm not familiar with that. All right, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting read. Read it sometime. There's a there's actually a video on YouTube that's pretty good about it. So yeah, just uh, sing into it. Just everything in in the in the universe is based on vibrations. So everything is music, which is actually pretty wicked. <laughs> There's a reason, in my opinion, for why music can transcend language, for instance. You can write a song, go on tour, go play someplace where they don't understand the language of the lyrics and it doesn't fucking matter. They still, in some way, understand the music. Uh, and you can say that it's a vibration, it's an emotional thing, whatever it is, they're connecting with it just as much regardless of what the lyrics mean in whatever language they're written in. For me personally, I can tell you when I hear like a Requiem or something and it's in German or Italian or whatever, that helps me get into the music a lot more because I don't understand what they're saying. So I can just feel it. And I remember once one of the, one of the conductors, the Atlanta symphony, not my dad, the, the other one, he took a German Requiem by Brahms and translated it into English so and then performed it, which so I could understand everything that the choir was saying. And it totally ruined it for me being to be able to actually understand it. And then I think about it in modern terms, like uh, you hear a S Swedish version 
of an Opeth song. Ah, uh, yes. Or off of the Dima records when they do songs in Norwegian. I like those better. I don't understand a fucking word <laughs> they're saying. But like for some reason, I feel like I can feel them way more because I don't have language to get in my way. Just the way that the delivery feels. It's, it's kind of interesting. You guys relate at all i've never actually given much thought to that but you are completely right i've i've heard some operas in english and it just sounds like a bizarre musical well, yes yeah, a bizarre musical that's a good <laughs> way to put it it cheapens yeah cheapens the shit out i of can't it. enjoy it anymore so i do agree with you um i when we play in places like spain we have people come up to us after and they're so excited and they can't speak to us and it's just a strange exchange but it's so amazing that they're so excited about the music and we just have like a bond without saying anything it's just because of the music so it is great but yeah i i definitely agree that sometimes language does get in the way it does and also vice versa i want to say that it also happens like for example say you've been listening to a song for years and then all of a sudden you go and read the lyrics and then you really understand what that song was about that can also enforce what that song really meant to you I've definitely had that a few times as well. It works both ways, yeah. which is weird, really, isn't it? <laughs> but that's very specific, I think, to shared experiences. But what about yes. the person whose life experience has nothing whatsoever to do in common with yours? Like they grew up in a completely different culture with different everything, different language, different, just different. And there is nothing in the lyrics where you guys can relate to each other at all. And then they still can connect to the music uh, the same way you can. Yeah. It's, That's why I say it's deeper than language. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's very powerful. And I, I don't think there's ever going to be a way to understand fully why or what. Why or what. But I think that it doesn't matter, does it? No. As long as you know how to use it. Yeah. Or, I, I have this theory that... You don't need to know how things work in order to be able to get the benefit out of them. I mean, a real simple version is I don't need to know how a car works yeah. to be able to drive it and get the benefit out of it. So I feel like we don't need to know where the creativity comes from. No, that's true. We need to know how to use it. Like I, I can play guitar, but I have no idea how to wire a guitar. <laughs> I just plug it in. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Thank God for people who are into building guitars, yeah, right? Yeah. And setting them up. <laughs> when did you come to this theory on writing that it's more like carving something out of stone or downloading it from uh, the comet? I think it just came over time because the first album we did, we wrote everything just in the rehearsal room. It was just four guys just writing songs of fun before we even thought about getting signed or anything. And then the second album, we had to write an album and there was pressure and we were just scrambling and writing what we could. Then the third album, we kind of started to find a balance of like, okay, I, I stir the pot of the riffs and then everyone else has input and then I stir the pot some more. And I found that the more I did that, just the more that I realized that the way I write is really particular and specific in that if I start a song with a riff, I'm not going to put any riff after that. And I won't be happy until I listen to that riff 200 times and think, right, it needs to do that next. I can hear it. 
it's, it's the fact that I can hear it coming next and not that I think it should come next. It's that I can feel that, the say, the tempo should drop 20 BPM and it should go at half time. I can feel that that is coming next, not that it should, if that makes sense. It's just... Yeah, it does. I wonder if it's similar to how, like, people who I work with know that I say that sometimes I see the future. And what I mean is, like, I will see the direction that I need to push the company in or something along those lines. Like, I don't know how familiar you are with what we do or not, but uh, when there was this program we released in 2015 called Nail the Mix, um, it was super clear to me, like like a well-lit road. It was going to happen like this, and then this next thing had to happen, and it was just all laid out in front of me. And I feel like you're saying that when you're writing something, it's like, it's not a question. It's more like that is the next part. Yeah. It's right there in front of you. It's the most obvious thing in the world. Yeah, exactly. And, and anything, as, as soon as you've realized that decision, anything else that goes there will not cut it. It's just wrong. That That's what, to me, what tells me it's the right decision because anything else isn't good enough. The, the, the thing that I've chosen is the best path. So it, it must be right because it just feels right. Do you get that ever, Brown, with your writing or anything like that certainty? Yeah, I do actually. It's only happened a handful of times, but the most recent example was a song called Vanta, which is on our latest album. And I wrote it in six hours, the whole song. And I questioned myself on it. It's like, I haven't spent enough time on this fucking song. Why is it? Why do I think it's right? And I changed it three times and then went back to the original. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's that there's that battle in the head as well. Even though you know that it's right, sometimes it came out too easily for you to accept it. Yeah, I know what you that's mean. The, that's that's kind of the battle that I constantly have with myself. Yeah. We've, <laughs> the, we've had the similar songs that you before like. where yeah. we'll have a song and then someone will suggest, actually, why don't we do this instead? And we go, okay, okay. So we change the song to that. And then four weeks later in rehearsal, we'd be like, should we just change it back to the original way? But like, yeah, it was better. <laughs> so it's, like, <laughs> it's it's annoying that spice is the, like variety is the spice of life. That's what they say. But sometimes, well, actually most of the time I find that that's wrong when it comes to a songwriting. Yeah. Uh, just go with your initial gut and trust it. Well, they also say grass is greener. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> which is the direct uh, the direct um, counter, I think, to var- varieties, the spice of life. Yeah. I do think too, though, what you're talking about, the questioning, the, the next move for the reason that you just specified. I think that we are programmed um, by mo- the modern world, especially here in the West. I don't know how it is in other places. This is a very Western thing. And I can tell you that, me in America, it's like supremely programmed in that if you don't feel like you worked hard for something, it doesn't feel real. (laughs) And so we have a real hard time just accepting that we created something awesome the first time. The first idea we came to is the one. And then, I mean, it comes down to shit like buying a house. Like you're not allowed to just be happy with the first one you look at. You have to look at a bunch of them. (laughs) Even if the first one is exactly right, checks off all the boxes. Like it can't be, there's gotta be something wrong with it. You can't just find the right thing 
the first time. I used to have this problem with uh, musicians in the studio when recording them. They would nail a take very quickly. And we're talking about like some of the best musicians imaginable in metal. Like, of course they would nail a take really quickly. <laughs> um, but they couldn't accept it a lot of the time. Like they wanted to just keep going and going. Like, I know I can do it better. And it's like, dude, maybe, maybe, but like, <laughs> this is fucking amazing. Like you just don't want to give yourself that. You just, you don't feel like you did enough work to have earned this performance. And so that's why you want to redo it. Not because there's anything wrong with the part itself. You need to feel right about it. And that's totally separate from the work itself, I think. I think it almost feels like you're cheating in a way. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird, right? Oh man, like the all these things, like it's it's all diseases or yeah, like a disease of the human brain, like that we just think that way. Nearly every musician I've ever met has always thought that way, where they think that that takes not good enough. And that can be down to something as simple as it felt wrong during the tracking bit. It's almost like you weren't into it enough or something, or maybe you thought fluffed one note and get rid of the whole take, let's do it again. It's really, really strange, isn't it? How we're all programmed in the Western world. I would say that's pretty universal, to be honest. I think the same goes for um, performing as well. There's so many times we've played a show and I will have played horribly and I will be thinking, this is the worst gig I've ever played. And then a kid will come up to me after and say, this is the best gig I've ever seen you or you played so well. <laughs> I'm like... We were the same gig. <laughs> it's yeah. like, okay. The worst part is when you listen back to the recording and it wasn't shit. Yeah. Like, yeah. say you thought it was shit and then you listen back and it's like, oh no, this was actually sick. That means I always need to feel that bad on stage. <laughs> I remember reading an interview with John Petrucci a long time ago, like maybe in the 90s or something, where he said that it's all a mind fuck because there will be nights where he gets off stage and he's like fucking stoked. Like just played the best show, like that feeling. And then their bass players throwing bottles against the wall because he thought they had the worst show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were at the same show. Yeah. All the time. That happens all the time. <laughs> Our perception of things is a goddamn roller coaster. So just out of curiosity, since you do deal with these types of, uh, very human things. Um, do you have any ways that you navigate those types of feelings or is it just, it happens, you deal with it at the end? I think when I was younger, I, I got really caught up in it and I get really upset with myself and just think, you know, I, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm, I'm not cut out for playing. And then I'll play a gig two days later and it'll be really well. And I'll, oh, no, I am, I am good. It's okay. It's, it's okay. But the older I've got, especially since I've started doing Twitch, because when you're playing on Twitch, if you make a mistake, it's kind of a different medium and it doesn't matter. No one, no one cares. And kind of adapting that kind of thing, I care a bit less. And I think that allows me to make less mistakes because I'm not too bothered about making mistakes, if that makes sense. So I'm, I'm just doing it. And if I make mistakes, that's fine. But because I'm not stressing over it, I, I think I play better. It's amazing. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Because so you're let, not getting in your own way, basically. Your con conscious mind isn't uh, fucking you up as much. 
yeah, the, the only problem sometimes is if like the adrenaline's going for everyone and Ben, our drummer, is playing at 1.75 speed the song and <laughs> I have to fit all those notes in for the solo because my, my solos, I have to play them the same live as they are on the CD. So if we're playing like twice as fast, I've got to fit all those notes in. <laughs> oh, so drummer's not playing to a click? Uh, no, uh, no, no, it's just completely live. Uh, so if it's if he's Ballsy. if he's really getting into it, you know, I suffer. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I've Man, not heard that, of any band playing without a click for a long time. It's it's rare these days. I think it's uh, more more necessity. Like we we've never had much gear. We've we've just got the guitars, the amps, the drums. We, we've never gone beyond that. I mean, for the first six years, I didn't know anything about delay pedals or anything. So I just played clean like straight through the amp, just, and for a solo, I'd ask the sound guy to, can you boost the sound of my solo out front? But I had no delay, no effects or anything. It was just, I didn't know about that stuff. And then someone said, why don't you use a delay? And I was like, what's that? And they put it on. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool, actually. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I find that situations like that often help um, you as a guitar player. Like if you don't know about something, yeah. um, I'm just trying to think of a particular example. Like we spoke to Bart from Textures a few episodes ago and he uses a 5150 without a noise gate, ballsy. which is ballsy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I still can't quite believe it. I actually played my 5150 today and I still can't really figure out how he did it. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't do that now. I wouldn't do it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Having limitations forces you to come up with solutions. Yeah. Um, I, I know that one of the things that, like an, a limitation I would force on myself um, while practicing was to try to pull off um, really, really convincing version of my band's songs with like pretty much no gain. And still have the solos sound mean as fuck. Yeah. Still have the riffs sound punishing and all that, but with like basically overdrive. And uh, and obviously it didn't sound as cool as the real thing, but it definitely forced my hands to get as much of the intensity as possible out of, you know, just the hands and just the guitar. Like I didn't have the ability to lean on the gain or yeah. to lean on the volume, to lean on those things that we love that make our guitar tone sound cool. But it was amazing. Like when I could start to get it to sound deadly with just a little bit of overdrive and like all the intent in the world with my hands, then when I would put it through, you know, the 5150 with a noise gate, um, it would sound... Uh, <laughs> fucking amazing and uh yeah so i think that those types of limitations are really helpful yeah definitely really really helpful i, I actually know of a, a couple of producers who purposely track the guitars clean they make the the guitarist track clean so they can't hear any distortion just to make a hundred percent sure that everything they're playing everything tight and I personally couldn't do that, but it will force you into a corner of, right, I've got to be really precise now because I can just hear tick, 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 and not know distortion, you know? There's a producer I know named Sam Pura. Um, he came on my other podcast, the RM podcast. He talked about that that's his guitar tracking technique. He will track with the DI 
and he does he doesn't do like super heavy stuff, but he does like a lot of pop punk. I mean, that's still heavy guitar tones, riffing, palm muting. Like you need to be able to play with distortion. It's not, you know, it's not as all out as the kind of stuff we all do, but still it is still heavy music. Yeah. And it kind of blew my mind to hear that. I mean, his records, he does a great job. So like, I, I definitely believe that there is never one way to approach these types of techniques. But the thing that I didn't understand about that method, and maybe you can explain it, or maybe you get it, Brown, is part of playing on distortion is understanding how to control noise. Because you can't hear a lot of the things that are going to make the amp go crazy once you have the gain up. Like, you know, move your hand to a weird spot on a string. Like, you're not going to hear that clean. But through the amp, you're going to definitely hear it. So what I wonder is, like, how does someone who records like that get, how do they overcome the challenge of just the noises that a guitar makes? Magic. Magic. Okay. <laughs> All right. Perfect. That's what I thought. <laughs> I, I couldn't do it. I, I need the response. I need the, that crunch and the, you know, uh, my solos, I, I put a lot of pinch harmonics in. And doing a pinch harmonic on DI is just ridiculous. Boom, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> it's it's just those you know when you're this what you were saying AR when you're palm muting like different amps respond differently so you move your hand slightly probably without even realizing it um, yeah um, your guitar's in a slightly different tuning then your muting point's probably going to be ever so slightly different for that one song um, so it'd be really difficult with that to do an entire re recording of it in clean but I think it also depends on the style of music like for pop punk i mean maybe not as technical but i can imagine to a degree it working if it's just consistent do you know i like think think basket case by green day just something like that yeah would probably be because it's pretty consistent throughout the whole thing yeah, but modern pop punk is more metal like in that they have more they'll like have like heavy breakdowns and like of course like so you're talking about like stuff like neck deep exactly like that kind of stuff actually okay yeah yeah then i wouldn't know how the fuck they would track that with with a clean di but yeah because the modern like i totally get it what you're saying with the green day example but modern pop punk has a lot of metal elements in it it's very true so like even yeah even something like paramore would be pretty difficult to do with yeah i just i don't understand but again like he does pull it off so i know it's doable it's just so outside of my experience of what it means to track a guitar that's meant for a heavy recording. Hey, we found your we found your different language requiem in the uh, in the recording world. What, Robert Shaw. No, no, just saying that you don't understand the words and. Oh, oh. <laughs> I I just don't understand the technique. It doesn't make sense to me because of the noise, man. Like. How, okay, so Brown, I know that you don't do this, but maybe you do this all, but like, I know that when I go to track a guitar, like, I find every fucking thing on that guitar that can make noise, <laughs> and I will either tape it down or put foam on it, like, you know, the springs and the the strings behind the nut and like all that stuff. And uh, I know that 
Brown, you are totally not into this. I'll even tape down the strings that aren't being played in a riff. Um, <laughs> obviously, if I was recording you, I wouldn't do that. But like when you're recording people that are not good at guitar or not great at controlling things, you got to do what you got to do. But I guess I've put so much thought and time into quieting down the beast of an instrument that it's hard for me to understand how someone who records heavy stuff doesn't do that and still does a good job. Yeah, I, I do agree. I've, whenever I record, I always, I put tape over the top of the strings. Um, if it's a fixed bridge over the bottom, past the bridge, uh, mm -hmm. sponge or anything on the springs, but, yep. but I never put anything on the strings itself. But yeah, I, I am a, a believer in deadening everything. <laughs> a man after my own heart. I, I am to, I am to a degree as well. The, um, the reason I got away with it on the first two records is because the guitar had a floating trem system that was blocked. So that means that I didn't have to use something behind the nut because it just wasn't making any noise. But then the moment I moved to when, well, let's just say seven strings adapted and you could buy one that was fixed finally. Um, then yeah, I started taping off the strings behind the nut cause it makes sense. Cause you can hear it loudly. Yeah. annoyingly it's annoying noise you can't eq it out no you can't and but the problem that i have is that usually i'm playing nearly all the strings during a riff um which i hate myself for and that's the only reason i don't take off the strings <laughs> yeah yeah makes sense so all you were talking about um pinch harmonic uh trick you said you like to do those a lot so um you mentioned that you've got a pretty slick way to do them where you can do them no matter where and when yeah um uh on the guitar i've i've never seen it done before i'm, I'm probably wrong it probably has been done before um but I, I don't use my thumb i use um the the middle bump of the pinky there so a lot of people do okay. the thing where you you know you you rest it on the string and move it down as you're doing like a but how I do my harmonics is any fret on any string. Um, if you just lay that bit of the pinky on the, on any string, and as you're picking up, keep it held any anywhere on the string. This works. So I, I move that up anywhere, and you can just hit a, a harmonic. There's there's unlimited amounts of harmonics doing that. That's kind of like a harp harmonic, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. It is. Kind yeah. Of. Yeah. Rather than a pinch, but. I was just going to say that has its own particular kind of sound as well, which is really, really cool. But anyway, what were you going to say? Sorry to disturb. It's easier on the lower strings, obviously, because you've got more string. But on the higher ones, uh, you can get a really piercing sound doing it, even on the high E. Uh, I think one of our newest songs, it has a harmonic on the 14th fret on the high E. And every single time I play that solo, I'm like, come on, get it, get it, get it. <laughs> and... <laughs> I will admit, not every time I get it. <laughs> Have you ever heard of a guy called Ron Tal, Bumblefoot? Yes, yes. He's so good. Yeah, it's kind of like his thimble thing, isn't it, in a little weird way. But it is unique. I've never seen anyone doing it like you're saying. I, I do a thing on... I, you don't need a pick either. Um, I do a thing on my Twitch where people ask me to do a no-pick request. So I can, I can play like Slayer with just my finger and... It's the Damn. same, the same concept. Just put the finger on, and I just pick up with my my nail or my finger. It's, it's the same thing. You're just blocking off the sound anywhere on the string. It's it's really cool. I, I'm I've been trying to think of a way to trademark it. <laughs> 
All right, I, I need to talk to you about this. <laughs> I need more info on this uh, no pick thing because I remember once, and Brown, uh, you dealt with this too. Oh, oh yes, I remember. Yeah, I, we're not going to mention names. We're not going to mention names. We can because it sounded great, but <laughs> yeah. Not as great as it would have with a pick. Okay. We, uh, Brown and I worked on a recording project for somebody many years ago where the guitar player did not use a pick. You managed to get a pretty decent guitar tone out of the reamp. I, I had a hard time with it. But the thing is that there was nothing about these riffs that were like uniquely uh, suited to not using a pick. He just didn't use a pick. It was kind of weird. Like he, he wasn't doing anything special that with just his thumb or whatever. He just straight up didn't use a pick. But I found it to be a little bit harder to dial just so you don't have the same amount of attack. Yeah. And then I also just thought about, doesn't that hurt? <laughs> yeah, um, no, no. No, okay. And I don't know why. I, I think it just must be, just be from playing with a pick for so long that your fingers are just used to that. Um, stress, I guess. But I mean, doesn't your nail get fucked up? Um, no, I think because it's kind of an over thing. You, you aren't really playing like parallel. It's more of a just skimming, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I just, I, I can just do that. <laughs> you kind of get a bit of a pick attack from the nail. So it's, it's kind of, kind of cool. I think, I think it's about how you hit it, isn't it? Like, yeah, that's probably what the issue was with that thing, Al. It must have been the guy didn't have a fingernail. Maybe. I felt like, okay, so I, like, all oh, your stuff sounds great. I believe you. Um, This guy's stuff, in my opinion, didn't necessarily sound great. Right. Like, like Brown, I think that the, the version that you did is the best it could have possibly sounded. And I was amazed you got it sounding don't, as good as it did. Don't thank me. That's thank all the equipment at Sphere Studios. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> but I do still feel like a lot of the qualities of playing with a pick were just not there for riffs that needed that kind of attack. And it just made it unnecessarily challenging. Well, if you think about metal, what metal's trying to achieve is literally all transient responses, isn't it? Yeah. It's about the initial impact of each individual note, whether that's on the kick drum. Like, imagine a kick drum from like the 60s that is just bottom end rather than having that snappy top end. It just doesn't, mm -hmm. doesn't really work for modern metal standards. Yeah, for Black Sabbath, earlier uh, heavy metal, yeah, for sure it works. It's different. But... Yeah, so it's, I, I guess, like, trying to find someone that plays with the nail is very, like, I guess it's quite rare. I think that's probably all it comes down to. It's just, it's almost like uh, the building of the pyramids, uh, a uh, a skill set lost. <laughs> I was going to say, like, you don't know how it was done. Yeah, skill set lost. Basically, that's basically the long and short of it. Tell us about Twitch. It's such a cool platform. What's the story there? Um, so it, it took me a while to understand what I was doing. Like I, I saw Matt Hafey from Trivium was doing it, and I watched him sometimes. It was cool, but I, I didn't get it. I didn't. It didn't click. So I started doing it myself during uh, lockdown, and I just started just playing requests. You know, just does anyone want to hear a Metallica song? Yeah, okay, I'll play that. Uh, but then it, it's 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 essentially just hanging out with people. So they just hang out in the chat, you speak to them, you play a few songs, check out some music on YouTube or anything, 
but really it's more about just interacting with people. It's it's not that much about playing. I mean, the playing is great. That's why people come to watch, but I have the most fun just talking to people. And it's, it's a really cool way to uh, keep in touch with the uh, fans or other guitarists and everything. So like, if I was 16 and I saw Alex Skolnick was on Twitch back then, <laughs> I'd have been there every single night. You know, it's... Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's just a cool platform. It's really good. Yeah, like even um, two of my guys do it pretty regularly, Mike and Andy. You see the Tesseract guys as well. Like a couple of those guys are constantly on it too. Um, but yeah, Matt Heafy's probably one of the bigger ones. Probably the, Herman Lee. Yeah. yeah, Herman Lee's also one of the big ones as well, isn't Fucking he? Fucking killing it. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting to me that you're saying that you feel like the playing part is less, that that's less what it's about. Because for instance, on Instagram, that is super important, the playing part. Yeah, I think it's, it's a fine balance because if you just sit there and you play guitar, people will just get bored. They, they come to to talk to you and for you to talk to them. If you're not, not, not acknowledging anyone, it's just not fun for anyone. So the music is great and it's really good, but I think most people come to just hang out. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. It's like the, you know, the people that would show up to a show are kind of like, you know, the people that like your band, but then Twitch, it's a little smaller demographic of people that are really into what you want to do almost like super fans yeah and they already know what you're playing is they just want to get to know you it's like a more of a personal relationship thing yeah it is and if you see instagram as like the sort of that's the way to steer them towards that al it's almost like the yeah yeah I think that's, yeah, I think that's the difference. In marketing, you would call Instagram more the top of the funnel. Yes, exactly. I didn't, I didn't want to go down that marketing name room. <laughs> I'll go down it. I mean, that's what it is. If you're using Instagram to steer people to over to Twitch, then. Do you think, though, that without there being this body of work that you're known for, that Twitch would be a good idea for you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, at first, I didn't understand, but I actually began to enjoy it, regardless of what I was doing. So just just interacting with just a handful of people and and playing music, it kept me up on practicing as well. So I'm, I'm these days, I'm not really one to sit down, pick up a guitar, and practice. But but I get I guess what I mean is, say that you weren't well known, like say that you were just starting out. Do you think it would be a good idea or do you think that it's something that's you can reap the benefits if you're already known because people right, right. Cause it's an avenue for fans to connect with you? I guess I'm asking this on behalf of guitar players who are listening to this who are not in a signed band, yeah. who who are not known, who want to become known. Yeah, it's, it's so worth it because there's, there's so many people on there who, you know, they only have two people watching but they're an amazing guitarist. And just just because they aren't, like, known, they don't have many people watching. And, and sometimes I feel I feel bad that, not that I've, I've got a free ride on Twitch, but the fact that people are coming because of Evile, that I feel guilty that someone is amazing. And I, I try and forward people to them. But, yeah, it's, it is worth it. It's just there's a lot of competition, that's all I'll say. There's, there's so many people on Twitch. But it's definitely worth it. If, if you, you're good at what you do, you know, flaunt it, definitely. I guess competition is part of 
part of music anyways. Yeah. And whether we like it or not, there's, you know, there's a lot of bands out there. There's a lot of, uh, a, a, a lot of people trying to do it, um, that you have to stand out from anyways. So I think that that, the fact that there's a lot of people on there, um, isn't necessarily a bad thing because no. it can, it can show you how to stand out from the crowd. Yeah. I, I remember a, a certain member of Megadeth once said, no matter what you do, it's always a battle of the bands. It's, it's the same, same thing on like guitar. It's, it's, you know, it's technically a battle, you know, if you, if, if you want to get good, get good. That's a interesting sentiment. Uh, it is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I think that it's very a very wise statement, actually. It's like uh, how humans are just so territorial. Yeah. And they don't change. No. Um, yeah, we're all savages. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. And, the th- well, also, I think that there's, I don't know if he intended this, but so I think there's the com- competition side of things that he meant, right? That you're always playing the battle of the bands. You're always competing. Like, yeah, and it always matters. There's that. Um, but then I think there's this other side that I'm interpreting, which is that nothing changes. And, uh, this is something I've noticed too, like in recording or whatever, uh, you know, you work with local bands, they don't know their songs, like everything sucks. Like, and you get this, this fantasy, like, yeah, when I start to work with signed bands, it's going to be, <laughs> you know where I'm going. It's yes. going to be better. Or, uh, or you deal with like local promoters and like local venues and like, you're thinking, well, this is because it's local level that it's super disorganized and shady and all that. Then, uh, <laughs> then you get to the, uh, you know, the touring level and all that. And you realize, nope, it doesn't change. There's just more money at stake. <laughs> it never changes. Like there's still problems at all levels. Oh yeah. Problems can sometimes be bigger with signed bands. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think, Shitload more at stake. I think they are bigger. <laughs> they are, there's more problems. They have to be. It goes with the old saying, you know, like if I have this much money, all my problems will go away. And in fact, it just exchanges <laughs> for a different set of problems, probably yeah. worse than what was there before. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather have those problems though. Yeah. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> when we all. <laughs> Do you feel that way about your experiences in the music industry that it kind of doesn't change much? That the kinds of problems and the kinds of frustrations that you will encounter at a lower level, they don't totally go away they morph a little yeah I, I would agree with that we haven't got to a level where i could fully appreciate any differences i mean if you get into the you know the testaments and the uh megadeths i don't know what that's like so maybe it is different but it, it is the same issues you know it's a, a lot of it's financial a lot of it is time management you know priorities like now i'm older I've got two kids. The band and music is, you know, it's not the first priority anymore. And but it is the same problems again. It's the, as when we started playing gigs and arranging gigs. Things going wrong at a venue, breaking down, tires exploding, nearly dying in bus crashes, and all that. That's all. <laughs> well, I think that the you know the Megadeths and the Testaments are like getting to that level is like almost impossible. Yeah. It almost never, almost never happens. I, I don't think that that's the typical experience for a signed band is to become a legend. 
or something. Yeah, I, I honestly don't think it's um, possible anymore. Um, I think it is, it's possible to get known and, and, and do well, but especially in metal, I think it's going to be hard to get, especially in this style of music like thrash. I think the, the titans of thrash, are, they're already there, you know. I think too, too many people are too cynical of newer thrash bands for thrash to become bigger, if you know what I mean. I think that goes with all metal, though. Like, yeah. um, it's funny, I was thinking about this, like, obviously, with festivals in the UK, there are none left in the US. Apologies, AL. Um, <laughs> but, like, festivals, like, down... Apologies. Yeah, um, that was, it was a joke. Um, festivals, <laughs> you like... took them away? <laughs> yeah, I, I put them in the bin. Um, so you should say thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, festivals, like, Download and stuff like that, it's, like, it's hard to imagine what band can feasibly headline a festival like that in the metal world that isn't one that's from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and sometimes 90s. There's only probably one, maybe two bands that I can name that they're not even that big. Like, they're big, but they're not that big. And it's weird that it hasn't happened, but I understand why it hasn't happened at the same time. And it's probably to do with the element of choice with things like Spotify, the internet. People have the opportunity to find exactly what they like, which then dilutes the pool a little bit. And then we get territorial and we turn into savages. <laughs> Bring Me the Horizon's pretty fucking big. That's the one I was going to say, but still... There's not that many bands that big. The other band was Architects that I was thinking of. Yeah, and it's pretty big too. Both Bring Me and Architects have both played Alexander Palace in London. And they've both also played Wembley as headliners. And Wembley's, what, 14,000, I think? Somewhere between 12 and 14, I can't remember. But still, in the grand scheme of things, that's still not a big London show in comparison to Metallica. Yeah. No, I, I mean, this is a legitimate concern. Yeah. It's a, it's a very legitimate concern that I, I actually don't think anyone's got the answer to. We're all going to have to wait and see, yeah. basically. <laughs> what I'm curious about is when that level of band retires do the bring me the horizons take their place it's possible yeah it's possible but i think that the people who listen to metallica on the whole don't listen to bring me the horizon so there's going to be a big gap but when all those bands get too old or they retire what are all the you know like the typical metalheads going to do who hear bring me the horizon but love slayer who are they going to go and see headlining at their festivals? Well, one thing that is hopeful, in my opinion, is Gojira's chart numbers this week. Yeah. Now, I don't know if this plays into our conversation or factors in to our conversation at all, but what I wonder is with a band like Slayer disappearing, does that open that, you know, that number one billboard spot for another metal band like Gojira. That's actually a good point. Uh, like, like, is that kind of what we're seeing that one of the, one of the old school bands got out of the way, retired. And, uh, now there's someone taking that spot. Maybe now I'm totally just speculating, mm. but when I saw their chart numbers, I was thinking, okay, is that what this is turning into? Are we looking at like the next mega band, I guess, or like the next Slayer or whatever, the next band that, super heavy band who has never like softened up who inhabits that spot and uh maybe could be it could be but there's not that many of them i think like you said we don't know and until something 
definite happens that we're like, oh shit, okay, this is how things are now. It's just, I, I don't know. But Gojira are doing amazing. I'd say that's yeah. probably the closest to the thrash sound as well, yeah. to be that big, um, even though they're not thrash. Um, but it's kind of got vibes and parts of it. It's definitely influenced by, let's say that. Yeah. More so than probably Bring Me. And the likelihood well, is that they're le- they're like legitimately purely metal. That's why I'm bringing up Gojira. Yeah. Like they're not. They don't have a bunch of different styles brought in. Like they're they're very much just a fucking metal band. So that that's why I bring that example yeah. up. So about guitar playing and music, um, you were mentioning that a key component in your playing is uh, the idea of intervals. And that through intervals, you're able to learn essentially anything. And it's actually a sentiment held by a ton of guitar players like Tom Quayle, Guthrie Govan, and Jack Gardner, and many more. I'm just curious, what's a, what was your process like for incorporating intervals into your playing? And how do you, how do you think about them? I didn't initially intend to incorporate intervals. It was, I started out learning annihilated songs i spent many years learning jeff's solos and riffs and the the more i learned them the more i started being able to pick out that okay that's three frets away that's a minor third up okay you know i I could do that so i I had like a process of knowing like i'll remember a mozart tune to uh, identify an interval think oh that's a fourth okay and then a fifth, I'll use Alice in Hell to go da 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 And just little things like that. And then the more I did that by learning music, I can hear a tune and figure it out in my head on the guitar. I have like a, a virtual guitar in my head that I think, right, I've got that in my head. And when it came to writing the solos, I think it kind of adapted to being able to hear what intervals could come next. Like mm-hmm. if I'm doing the, the root note, to go to a fifth, I can hear the fifth there, but it needs to go somewhere else after that. And I think that's how I incorporated intervals in, but I, I don't think it was a conscious thing. It just came with learning things by ear. I actually think that learning by ear is the best way to really understand those intervals. It's one of the key pieces that people miss when they're running up and down scales is they're too busy working out the finger patterns rather than actually listening to the difference between the root and all the intervals within a scale. Um, I will say that I'm very jealous that you can see a fretboard in your head and visualize where everything is. <laughs> it, it's a blessing, but it's also a curse at times. Like sometimes I can't 100% enjoy music because I'm thinking, right, okay, root, that's third, that's sixth. And my, my, my Mrs. Natalie's like, can you just stop thinking about it and enjoy it? <laughs> <laughs> the good thing is, though, is that when you do hear chord sequences that maybe aren't currently in your uh, musical vocabulary, then it gives you a sort of a pinpoint on working it out. Yeah, I recently had that with, I don't know how well known it is in America, but um, Thomas the Tank Engine. (laughs) (laughs) The theme tune to Thomas the Tank Engine starts on such a bizarre mode. It's that chord, that chord. Yeah, it's odd. And it it took me like half an hour to think, ah, okay, I've got it now. (laughs) 
What mode is it in, just out of interest? It starts in major, but then it goes to like a minus six within a major chord. Oh. And it's, it just yeah. threw me for so long. I was like, I don't understand what's <laughs> going on. <laughs> I think AL's going to listen to this theme song now. When you were a kid, it sounded like the end of the world. Thomas the Tank Engine. engine. Yeah. All right, hang on. It should be like an old crappy looking um, version. Yeah, I, f- I think I found it. Let's see. It's fucking weird. <laughs> Oh, yeah, this... Oh, I know this tune. Yeah. (laughs) That song is hilarious. (laughs) I'm totally unfamiliar with uh, Thomas the Tank Engine, though. Yeah, you're not missing much. (laughs) No, this is a really famous theme. Is it really? I don't know. I feel like I've heard it 8 million times. I don't know where. Yeah, it would be from Thomas the Tank Engine, then. (laughs) That's hilarious. So, you pick this up just by virtue of listening to music. But what Brown just said is like that this has got to be helpful for things outside your vocabulary. What I'm wondering is if it is something outside your vocabulary, is your brain just like a computer that just lays it out on your internal fretboard anyways? Yeah, I mean, essentially there's there's not much music that isn't translatable onto a guitar. Like we'll, we'll be watching TV and some, I don't know, some commercial will come on and have music on it that is not metal. It's barely even pop, but it will have like a bass line and some weird sounds. And it's it's all musical and I can just adapt it to it being like a guitar lick or something so I can tell what key it's in. I, I couldn't tell you what key it's in, but I can tell you what the root note is of whatever key it is, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. So I can't say, oh, that's C-sharp. I can just be like, that's the root note. So I know what all the other notes are. That's quite interesting, actually. So, yeah, because I thought that the way you were explaining the keyboard, sorry, the fretboard in your head, it made it almost sound like you had perfect pitch. But the fact that you don't have perfect pitch means that everything that you've done has been trained just by focusing on the right things. Yeah, so if I hear a tune on the TV, I will have my virtual fretboard and I will just pick a location, say D on the A string. I'll say, right, that's the root note of whatever this tune is. And then I figure it out in my head. And then if I were to go to a guitar, I'll be, I'll be wrong. So, oh, it's B. So it's down three frets. And that's that's the, the only thing I do. So I just know how to move it around. There's a guy in Riffar that does that. I mentioned him a few uh, episodes ago. His name's Nizer. I played the... Uh... I played a piece of music to him and it was uh, from an old game called Shining Force on the Mega Drive. I remember that. Yeah, I played it once and he played it back on the piano. He literally (laughs) physically played it. He played it back. I couldn't fucking believe it. And I still can't because, and he just knew what the intervals were. And it seems that it was very similar to that. It's just really good ear training. Piano is a completely different animal, but yeah, that's very cool. (laughs) (laughs) Once you start to develop this, did you ever do any conscious ear training or did you just one day, boom, I got a fretboard in my head and it works? I don't remember not having a fretboard, <laughs> but. <laughs> and it always worked. Yeah. The only thing I've ever done is like I've gone online and done like an interval training thing and just guessed the intervals. I've never done anything beyond that other than learning music. So on my Twitch, one thing I do is anyone can request any song from any genre in the world. And I will play it and just figure out the song as I'm going. Sometimes that works. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> That's really interesting. I really wish I had that skill set to that level. Like I said, it's a curse like- sometimes. 
honestly, you know, when I was studying music, um, the most valuable stuff, like out of all the different classes I took, by far the most valuable one was ear training. We had to do the sight singing stuff at Berkeley, and that was helpful, but it was extremely helpful to take that stuff and translate it onto guitar. I think that that unlocked more in my playing and writing than almost anything else that uh, that I've done because it just gave me the ability to hear things and know yeah. or or hear that hear something that hadn't been written in my head and know how to do it. That came through ear training, not through not through knowing theory or anything else. Yeah, I I think if if I would have just stuck with guitar tab books and not learn things by ear and gone off on, in my own direction, I probably wouldn't have stuck with the guitar because it, it made it interesting for me and it gave me the challenge. So I think I would have just maybe not been as bothered about the guitar if I didn't do that. Quite interesting. Like I never thought of single moment catalysts for people. Really? No, I've never actually thought about that. No. And it just like sort of made alarm bells ring in my head as to what it was for me. Cause I also didn't enjoy learning from tab books either. Yeah. I, it, it was good initially. Like, you know, I had um, master of puppets and ride the lightning ones and, I initially learned like the clean part in Master of Puppets and reading it on the page and then learning it was like, wow, it sounds just like on the album. This is amazing. But then the, the more I played and learned, it was just like, this tab looks wrong. Those notes are wrong. <laughs> yeah. It's just, you know, it's not helpful. It's teaching people the wrong thing. I noticed that shit too. You know, one of the things that I used to do back in the day that really, really helped on this topic of learning other people's stuff was to learn their stuff by ear, but write it all down and to try to figure out everything that was happening. And so I would start doing it for like orchestral pieces, Metallica pieces, like it didn't matter. Just figure that shit out. And there, there wasn't the software to slow it down or analyze it or anything like that. But it was like gym for the ears or something. Yeah, exactly. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because it kept it interesting. A lot more interesting than just reading a tab book. And yeah, the tab books were wrong, but tab books bored the shit out of me. But I wanted to learn people's music. And so I figured out a way to do it that I found really, really interesting. Because then I could analyze it and like really, really get inside of it. like Really understand it. And that made it fascinating. Whereas just the standard buy it a guitar world, get some tabs or buy the tab book that would have bored the shit out of me. And I might've quit. Yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm not much of a perfectionist or I was that as soon as something was wrong and I know it's wrong, it's like, I don't want to do this. I don't enjoy it. Like the thing that should not be in the official tab book says it's in drop D, but it's not, it's in standard D. And all you have to do is watch a live video of Metallica. They play it in standard D, but this tab book has made the world of guitarists think it's in drop D and it never was. So that's why companies like Sheet Happens are cool. Um, and that's what I think is so great about the modern age Yeah. in terms of learning stuff is that you can get stuff straight from the artists. And yet what Sheet Happens does is uh, their tab books are all done by the actual guitar player in the band. So if it's wrong... I mean, he's a guitar player, <laughs> but, but what these old guitar magazines used to do, um, for the tab books, for people who don't know is they would have someone on staff who would just listen to the, listen to the albums and 
try to transcribe them uh, and they'd make mistakes all over the place. It blew my mind. Like, how was that official with that many mistakes? Pissed me off so much. I can't imagine that James or Kirk even knew that that thing existed. The management were like, yep. That's exactly what I figured was that when I realized how many mistakes were in these things, part of me was like, does Marty Friedman even, has he even seen this? <laughs> I, I doubt it. So I remember buying the Rust and Peace one and trying to learn that stuff and being like, no, this is not right. No, the there's no way he would have approved this. No, the, I remember I did a, a, a full playthrough of Rust in Peace um, on the Twitch, and there's a few solos that... I saw your Lucretia one, badass. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. But there's like Tornado of Souls, the tail end of that solo is, I think, the hardest guitar solo I've tried to learn. And people think it's easier than it is, but if you slow it down and you learn all those notes and how he fits them all in, it's it's honestly impossible. And there's no way someone could have tabbed that back then in the time that they had. No way. Yeah, it also, when reading those tabs, it doesn't line up musically with what he's doing. Yeah, sometimes yeah, it's just on a it completely just, different fret or note, and it's just, where does it, did that come from? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It kind of wishes exactly. that I could teleport back to the 90s and give someone that was doing that my sugars nothing to see how they would <laughs> do it, thinking that it's on a just six string guitar. Just because you're, you're sadistic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, this bothers you guys, but man, one thing that has bothered me so much is watching somebody cover a song or a local band cover a song, and they just get the riffs straight up wrong. Like, I don't understand how. Like, simple riffs sometimes, but like, Things will just be like a half step off in a riff or just that shit irks me beyond, beyond what it should irk me. I, I just cannot fucking handle listening to somebody cover something where they're playing it wrong. Yeah, I 100% I agree. And I, I feel bad to say that um, I think Pantera covered Seek and Destroy Live and Dimebag's, <laughs> Dimebag's playing the riff and he plays it wrong each time and it just it grinds on me so much. <laughs> <laughs> and also i'd like to point out that um there's also a cover of the dream theater did and it's not entirely downpicked and it really fucked me off it really fucked me off <laughs> oh was it a metallica song it was and okay it was alternate picked and it made me very very upset which which song master of puppets oh my god no. Yeah, right. I've just made no. you angry for the rest of the night. <laughs> yeah. I don't even I never is, want to right, see that. John could probably do it. Like, yeah. after maybe spending a couple of hours, I reckon he could do it. He's got the skill set there. It's just a case of actually of doing it. Yeah, of course he could. Um, and I know the alternate pick has a particular sound, but you cannot play Master of Puppets by Metallica with alternate picking. No. <laughs> it's weird, though. That takes a very skilled ear to know the difference. What I wonder, okay, this is why I'm relating it to what you were saying about ear training. When you hear these covers where someone is like flat out just playing the wrong notes, like say the riff has eight notes in it and two of them are just a half step off from where they are in the real riff. Like, are they just not hearing it? Like, do, like don't they have the original riff? Like, don't they, they're covering it. So they should know what, 
that they're playing wrong notes, but they don't. And so then the question is, yeah, is their hearing fucked up or is it just not developed? What is that? I think it could be under development. Because um, I remember even when I started and before I'd, I'd learned stuff by ear, there's ways I played riffs that years later I would pick up that song again and think, oh, yeah, I, I've, I've been playing that wrong for years. But I didn't know at the time because it was just, it was, might have even been a tab book issue where the tab book told me that that was the riff, but it wasn't at all. So I think it is under development of some people. They just, they can't hear yet that that one note is not that note, you know? Have you ever, uh, have you ever done that with your own riffs where like over time it changes? <laughs> <laughs> Only in, in the way that I can't remember the riff. <laughs> Yes. So I have to relearn it. And then you go back to listen to the album. Yeah. And then, and then yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. But the, the, the solos <laughs> aspect is worse because when I left Evil, it was 2013. I rejoined in 2018. And I accepted that I'm not going to play guitar ever again. And then I rejoined and I listened to my solos and thought, oh, shit. <laughs> I have to relearn all that because I genuinely forgot every single one. I, I didn't write them down. I didn't tab them. I just... When I was in the band, I thought, I know them all, it's fine. And then five years out, all gone. <laughs> How long did you go without playing? When I left, Eric Records asked me to do a, a solo album. So that kind of kept me playing for maybe a year and a half, maybe two. And then the album was released in like 2015. So I'd say between 2015 and 2018, I didn't even pick up the guitar, not even once. Was that from burnout? Slightly from burnout, but just from... I just didn't want to. It was like, you know, I've got a job now. I understand. Yeah, we've, we're going to have a, a kid. And I, I just wasn't interested in guitar anymore or music, really. I'm surprised you picked it back up. I think I missed being in Evile, which with that comes picking the guitar up again. So it was a case of <laughs> I have to pick up the guitar. <laughs> During that time period, was it just like moved on? That's it? Yeah. Basically, I, I dedicated my whole adult life to Evile. And a lot of the time that was having no job and having no money because all my time would be writing the music, emailing tours, you know, no employer wants to hear, can I go on holiday for three months? They'll be like, no, you're, you're either quitting or you're fired. So <laughs> go on holiday forever. Yeah. <laughs> so it got to the point where like, you know, I'm older now, there's bills to pay. There's just all the, all the normal like landmarks that people go through in their life, like jobs and everything. Uh, I, I wanted to get a job. I wanted to earn some money, you know, start a family and just have a more, um, a, a lifestyle that made more sense, you know, not, not flying 10,000 miles to make 20 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know that vibe. I've got a question though. While you had those three years off, did you still have the fretboard in your in your brain? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I just needed to ask that. It never it was, leaves. Uh, it yeah. never leaves me. <laughs> so basically, you can't escape the guitar, regardless. Even if you have a three-year break, you're probably going to return back to it. Yeah. You? I think what yeah. where, what it stems from. I just remembered is in in college. I did music. I I barely showed up because I was. Not, not interested but my teacher at the time was um he was like do you know what a relative minor is and i said yeah it's like if you're in g major the relative minor is e minor 
And what he said, right, for the next lesson, I'm going to give you a quiz on some relative minors and relative majors. And I've, I figured out that it's three frets away, wherever you are. So if it's F major, it's D minor, three frets down or up. And he was giving me the quiz and he was saying like C sharp, B flat, G sharp, F. And I only knew that because I started seeing the fretboard in my head and thinking three frets, three frets, all everywhere. And that's probably where it stems from, him, him giving me that, um, those, those tests on relative minor. Wait a second. That's very interesting you say that because that's how I learned all my theory too. That's how I passed every test and everything. <laughs> any, any one of these theoretical questions that were asked or whatever... I always related it back to a fretboard. There's a fretboard in my head and I would have to do the math through the fretboard. Then I'd get it right. Like I couldn't do it on the notation. Like I under, I could read the notation, yeah. but it was always like a second language to me. Like I always had to relate it back to how it works on the fretboard. Yeah. And it exactly. just made sense. So exactly. I get it. That means you, uh, it's kind of like language, you know, as you get older and you learn new languages, you're, body, sorry, your brain always relates it back to the native language version of the word. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're younger, it doesn't do that. You just relate it to the word. It's uh, after a certain age, the brain does that. It's quite weird. Yeah. So that's why when you're younger, you find it easier to do certain things, which is why I should have picked up guitar when I was three. Yeah. than 13. Like, like three girl van. <laughs> yes. Is that what he did? Yeah. Uh. It may starting to all come together now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think like, like you said, Al, um, it is a mathematical thing. Like me learning intervals, it was nothing to do with music. It was a fact of, right, a fifth is this far away and a third is this far mm -hmm. away. It was nothing yeah. to do with music. It was just, I know that that means that by that distance. And then I just adapted it to music from learning. <laughs> It is kind of similar to language as well, isn't it? Because when you have a word, you associate it with the, the visual of an object. Whereas when you know an interval name, whether that's a flat second, a fifth, minor sixth, minor seventh, major seventh, it doesn't matter. You kind of can associate it with the sound in what key you play in most. Yeah. Like you can hear it in your head. Yeah. It's really interesting how that can help so much with understanding music. But that's still mechanical in a way, isn't it? It's not really music at that point. It's definitely mechanical. Definitely. I always felt like, for me, the fretboard thing was a crutch and, like, held me back um, because, like, I wanted to be able to understand that stuff in pure music. Now, the thing is, I could hear it and understand it, too. Like, and so I could hear when things were out of key and, like, you know, I would hear things. But to be able to actually sit there and, like, really name it out and, like, really do it there always be a fretboard and i got faster with it over time of course but like i always felt like it wasn't pure music like it was a step whatever pure music is like that's just what i called it like i've always felt like it was a step removed yeah from pure music and that i was holding myself back by doing that now i don't know if that's true or not like i don't know that that was just me being neurotic and you know, self-hating, uh, which is entirely <laughs> possible. But like, I felt like I was holding myself back by doing that. I, I always found a similar thing in that 
I felt like I was cheating and I tried, I learned to read sheet music, but like you, it's, I have, I have to be like, right, that's F, so F-A-C-E. Yep. I've got it. Okay. That's an E. And then it'll have the, the, the key change. I'm like, oh, um, okay. So it's got three sharps now. So uh, I'm just, I can't do it. I can't, I can't sight read. I, it takes me forever to do sheet music. So, uh, and that's another thing I just accepted. I can't do it. So I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you could still do it more than a lot of guitar players. <laughs> no. <laughs> no? <laughs> I remember this. Sorry, go on. I was just, just going to say this. I remember this situation about um, sight reading. So for a short period of time when I was in high school, I learned to play the classical guitar. And then the school production asked me to learn West Side Story on the guitar. And they gave me two weeks. So, uh, and it was only in music. Oh. So I gave I gave the music to my classical tutor, and he's like, "Yeah, this would take me about a year." Wow! <laughs> and I can't, I just can't read music either. It's like it doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't give me enough information, almost. Yeah. Do you ever? Did you guys find that that there was not, even though the information's there, and thousands and thousands of musicians can play it, it always felt like I was always second guessing what it should be. Yeah, I'm the same. Um, I'd, I'd learn the sheet music and then I'd find out even that I've made some mistakes because I've read the note wrong or um, it's, it's just it's just too foreign to me, sheet music. And I, I'm more familiar with just the music instead of the, the sheet music, just hearing it. Do you guys think that sheet music matters much for being a guitar player? I can only talk from my experience and no, I, I, I've never needed it. At one point, I did want it. I did want to be able to read it and use it, but I've not needed to, so I haven't. What about you, Brown? Depends on the style of music. Like classical guitar players, that kind of style maybe, but I think more people just feel comfortable reading tab because it's just quicker. Guitar players don't really think of the fretboard in notes. They think of it as numbers, uh, the dots on their fretboards. It's just way quicker that way when it comes to sight reading anyway. Yes, Tab doesn't give you the information, but the moment you've heard the song a couple of times, then it's easy, applicable in our styles of music anyway. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's a lot of judgment coming from academia about sight reading and guitar. Like, um, you know, you're not as legitimate of a guitar player if you don't know how to sight read. I can say that in my professional career, the amount of times that sight reading has come up is exactly zero. <laughs> okay? <laughs> exactly zero. And it's, you know, we're like in the second decade now or yeah. something like that. I can imagine that your dad hates you for saying that. Dude, he hated me anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If that's if that that's not enough to uh to have uh, started the hate, uh maybe continue it. No, I'm kidding. My dad doesn't hate me. But you no, know, for real, the I'm not saying that sight reading doesn't matter, but I'm just saying that a lot of time and effort went into learning it and it's come up exactly zero times. I think it might be a genre thing. So I, I watch, um, you know, Adam Neely? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, he does gigs where he, he turns up the sheet music and he has to play it. And obviously for guys like that, you need sheet music. You, it's, it's play on the night. This is the song, play it. Here's the sheet music. 
And for people like me, I would be just screwed. But there's those high caliber, like jazz musicians and all those guys who are just, they can fly through sheet music. So I do, I do think there is obviously a, a need for it, but of course, I don't need it. <laughs> I think a lot of guitar players as well would be probably more beneficial with chord charts, yeah. more so than even sheet music, even in that situation. Do you feel like you got any benefit out of learning the little bit of sight reading that you did do, did it help your musicianship in a way that even though you don't use it, it made you a better musician and you've and it's paid off? Or do you think that that time would have been better spent on something else? reason I'm asking is because is it something that is, we don't use it for the job, so it's pointless. Or is it one of those things that's good just as a musician to have that experience? I learned a lot rhythm-wise so you know quarter notes half notes and triplets time signatures uh it really helped me with that so when i'm picking something or i'm writing something out i'll know exactly what the rhythms are of things and there's there's one song i was thinking about the other day that we have we have like a two triplets going into some uh 16th notes so it's dun 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 digga digga and our drummer thought it was dun 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 dun, dun, dun and he thought it was triplets to the end, but I was like, no, it's as if you're going digga digga digga, you're missing off that fifth hit, so it's digga digga, digga digga, yeah. So I know that that is four sixteenths missing off the the next drop down. So without knowing sheet music and these rhythms, I wouldn't have known to say, look, it's not a triplet, it is this, and I've written it out in the rhythm. Obviously not with the sheet music, just the rhythm of it, but, but that really helped me, stuff like that. That kind of stuff helped me tremendously too. I wonder if in the modern day, getting good with the piano roll is a good substitute for that. Yeah. You think so, Brian? I learned with the drum map in Cubase. Yeah. The diamonds are life. Diamonds are forever. <laughs> <laughs> the worst Bond movie. Well, not the worst. No. <laughs> I learned all my rhythms from that over sheet music yeah i do think that the piano roll or the drum map or whatever is a good substitute for that because you have to do the same thing do you know what the best part is what's that you press one button and it puts it into to music <laughs> well you can actually hear it yeah. well that too yeah but but also you can just press one button and it's music voila i can do music <laughs> <laughs> the thing is though no for real though the thing that I think was a detriment about writing down sheet music and doing it that way was the idea of not being able to hear it. So you don't know if it's right. Yeah. It's like you think it's right, but you don't know. And with the piano roll, it is or it isn't. Yeah. But I can hear it. Well, whenever anyone asks me, like, if you had a time machine, where would you go? And the first thing I think is I'd love to go back and like listen to Chopin playing live and just hear like how he phrased his piano parts and even like Beethoven, how he played for Elise or Moonlight Sonata. It would just have been fascinating to just... You sure you want to smell people back then, well, though? no. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds it's, horrifying. It's, it's actually a good point if you think about it, because even... Yeah, it is a great point. If you think about the... You play a riff twice and it's different. Just one riff, the same riff that you wrote, play it twice. Both times you play it ever so slightly differently. So even... If the music is correct, it's not ever going to be the way that Beethoven played it. No. It's just not. And the same goes with Chopin and all the other greats because it's not them. And we, we had a really long, in-depth discussion about how 
no one sounds like Dimebag. Like, Dimebag just is Dimebag. And I think it's probably the same for those two, Chopin and Beethoven, regardless of how many times I've heard the marriage uh, symphony. Is it symphony number five or is it nine? I can't remember which one it is now. No matter how many times I've heard that, I know it's not the way that Beethoven meant for it to sound. Yeah, well, <laughs> well even in this day and age, there's different recordings of the same piece that are at different tempos and the instrumentation sounds different. It's like, you know, neither of those is probably right. <laughs> no. There's... The, the difference, I guess, with the Dimebag one and the Beethoven example is at least we have Dimebag's recording. Yeah, that's true. So, so we have a way of, uh, we have a gauge for um, someone, you know, coming real close, like Wes Hawk, comes real close to being able to pull it off. Um, but with Beethoven, we don't have a fucking clue what, because the map is not the territory with sheet music. Like it's just a map. That's all it is. It's not the actual music. Um, with the piano roll, it's the act. I mean, well, if you're writing something that's going to be played by somebody else, like a drum part or something, it's not the actual music, but at least you have the actual parts in a way that you can hear. Yeah. yeah. You can hear the tempos, all that shit. That's a beautiful thing. Cause Yeah. Who the hell knows how Chopin actually intended for things to sound? Maybe he never played a note. He just knew the music and wrote yeah. it down. He's like, yeah, I can play it. <laughs> well, maybe he just got drunk and just wrote down some random things yeah. on a piece of paper. <laughs> I'm sure there's some of that back then. Like, there's just no way to know. That's the problem with old music. I will say this. Have you ever heard those symphonic recordings done with period instruments? No. Oh man, you want to hear shitty? <laughs> go, go check those out. Is it? Is it like um, what's that style of music that we always outsider music? No, it's not like outsider music. It just sounds more like a high school orchestra. Or <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, they'll play period instruments, and they just were not capable of holding a tune, basically, or sustaining as long, or just any of these things that modern the modern versions can do. And so you hear it and it just doesn't have the same, uh, it's just not as good. Um, it's just straight up not as good. And I wonder, like, I wonder if that's because, um, you know, we've evolved too, so we can tell that it's not as good. But to them back then, that being the best that there was, like, it sounded amazing. Or could they hear the problems that, I hear in them now, like the intonation problems and sustain problems. Like, I really wonder about those sorts of things. I reckon the the regular layman back then, they wouldn't have known any, any better, for lack of a better word, because it's like us having a, a phone now. Like 20 years ago, you had to have a landline phone and, you know, you mm -hmm. arranged to meet your friend somewhere. And if they're not there, you've got no way to contact them. But we knew no better. We didn't have mobile phones. Back then, they had shitty instruments. Well, we didn't think any different. Well, yeah, exactly. We didn't think anything special of it. Just couldn't contact Yeah, them. that's it. There's, there's no other way. And maybe back then, it sounded shitty, but it was the only thing that was. So it's that's it. It sounds great. And just, that's it. 
That's a good example that can be translated to guitar as well. I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever tried any guitars from the 50s and 60s. The one that really comes to mind is the future, what are they called again? Ibanez did a copy of them. Three pickup things, terrible. Selmar guitars, you know, some of these really old brands. You, if you go down Denmark Street in London, you can see a bunch of them. And they were shit. And I mean shit. It was like having a guitar made out of your toilet seat, but not to the standard of Brian May's that sounded great, you know? Um, so I think it was just down to a couple of different things. Firstly, the technology maybe hasn't advanced as much. So just as an example, the first piano ever made, I'm pretty sure that it was probably fucking awful. Yeah. Um, whereas now, you know, you can get a piano and it sounds absolutely beautiful and there's varying degrees of that same with the electric guitar i mean um you know the fender strats from 1954 the 54 ones i don't particularly like but if you go to 56 they're pretty fucking sweet yeah i've, I've never played any old instruments uh, i think i might have played like one less paul in new york at sam ash and I can't remember anything about it. <laughs> I've got really bad memory. That means it was shit. <laughs> yeah, probably. Our standards have evolved too. Like, have you guys heard any songs from the 80s or something? And I don't mean like really great songs that are just a little bit out of tune, but they're so great that we don't care. I mean like stuff that was in those recordings that is so damn out of tune that it's like, how the fuck? Was this allowed? I've actually got a, I've got a good example of this, actually. Have you guys ever seen the Disney movie, uh, The Little Mermaid? Yes. Yep. The vocals are so out of tune. <laughs> really? Yeah, there's one song and I couldn't believe it. I listened to it a few weeks ago. Well, go listen to Home Sweet Home by Motley Crue. Oh, God. I can imagine that's bad. It is so out, like it's painful. And, you know, I didn't notice that when I was a kid. Yeah. At all. The same in um, uh, Megadeth, um, Tornado of Souls. Uh, the, the middle bit that slows down is that the land of opportunity or something. The bass is flat. And it's, it's really, you can really tell, but it just passed, you know, that's it. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Do you reckon that the assistant can be bothered to change the tape that day? Or they ran out of tape or something and they were like, yeah, let's just... I just wonder if they noticed... You never know, but my Freeman's in the band. I think he would have noticed. Maybe. It's not necessarily that their ability to notice things wasn't there. The human brain hasn't evolved that much in 20 years or 30 years. That's mm. not enough time for evolution to occur. But what I mean is were the, the standards are so different that their brains might not have even been uh, looking for that. Yeah. So not noticed in that way and that that kind of stuff was just allowed to fly. And so no one noticed because it wasn't a detail that even mattered. Yeah, I think so. That's what I wonder. Yeah. Not not if Marty Friedman is capable of hearing it because <laughs> I'm sure he was capable of hearing it. Yeah, I, I think it might have been a, a, even a budget constraint, a time constraint, where it's just like, look, we don't have time to retract the whole base. What one thing that always happens, it doesn't happen anymore because we learn from it, but we'll track everything, track the bass and everything. We'll get to the solos and the vocals, and then we'll realize, shit, that part's really out of tune or that part was wrong. But you've you've broken down the cabs now. You can't get that sound again. It could have been that, you know, the, maybe Ellison had left. Maybe he wasn't even 
in the studio anymore. And it was just a case of, well, that's that's the best part. <laughs> Modern technology. Yeah. A beautiful thing. Yeah. It's a blessing and a curse. The problem is, I think, with like, you know, you were saying about cabs being broken down, like nowadays most of the time you just get a di and if something's fucked then just do it all again but you've got all the takes yeah so at least it's not a problem anymore oh the kemper the kemper saved us on this last album we, we profiled the rhythm sound uh, and the lead sound and it was even at the fact the, the point where we i'd come home everything was recorded it was at the mixing stage and i emailed chris like where's that guitar part in so-and-so song and he goes, I, I don't know what you mean. That there never was a part there. So yeah, yeah, there was, but it was on the demo. And we just never tracked it in the studio because I completely <laughs> forgot about it. Mm-hmm. But because we profiled the amp, I could just track it at home and send it. It was like, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it happens, man. Technology is a lifesaver. Like Brown, I do agree with you that blessing and a curse. But the thing about it is that I really do think that technology is an unavoidable fact of life. It's going to evolve. We're going to have new inventions. And so... Do you know what it is for me? What's that? It's the infinite element of choice. Now, when it comes to recording guitar sounds, like obviously I grew up in an, an environment where some engineers would spend seven days plus just trying to move the mic by... Mm-hmm you know, micro millimeters to get the right guitar sound. And in there. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> just, it's magical when that guitar tone on that record, you know, you listen to it and it's just magic. And I feel like that element's kind of gone a little bit. Like there's not yeah. really uniqueness anymore because when something's not right, someone will just be now, right, I got that guitar tone. I'll just press it on there, done. That's the only reason. I think that I am against technology about, you know, fixing things that are broken by all means do it, do it all the time. But like the uniqueness of some of those guitar tones is down to not only budgets from labels, which over the years has gotten worse, but time as well. Like, you know, people used to only need to do a record once every five years. Now it's every one to 18 months. Yeah. But I'm sure that you have heard guitar tones where someone spent seven days moving a a mic around that were never amazing and then someone dialed an amp sim and it fucking crushed that tone. yeah of course that happens too (laughs) yeah so that doesn't say anything about the technology that just says to me things about people like some people suck some people don't some people look for shortcuts you are correct others others don't so to me, the technology is neutral. It's just technology. It doesn't It doesn't make choices for us. When we were in the studio um, with Russ on our, I think it was second album, We he had a Kemper Russ, out. Which Russ? Uh, Russ Russell. Yes. Fuck yeah. I love that guy. Underrated. Really, oh, yeah. really underrated. We didn't nail the mix with him a, a couple of years ago. Oh, guy, he's, he's so he's good. Great. His brain is insane. He had a Kemper, and we'd never heard of a Kemper. And... He showed me what it could do, and I was blown away. It was just me and him in the control room. So we recorded a riff through the tube amp, and then we recorded the exact same riff through the Kemper. Then we brought the rest of the band in and said, right, tell us which of this, these riffs is played through the tube amp. And they all picked the Kemper. <laughs> okay, so when I first got the Kemper in like 2013, and... 
like I wanted to use it because it was awesome. I had a lot of people come in to the studio and just be super resistant yeah. <laughs> without even having heard it. They'd just be super resistant. And it's not that I was saying we shouldn't use an amp, but I was suggesting that we profile the amp. Anyways, I would do that too. I would do the blind, uh, the blind AB. And every single time they thought that the Kemper was the tube amp. Every time. It's, it was so weird. Like they never got it right. Yeah. I don't understand why. There's something to be said for playing the Kempers live as well, because I played for years with tube amps. And then we played some shows with the Kemper and I've never had such a clear, crisp, amazing sound as I had with the Kemper live. It's just, it just blew, blew the tube amps away. And that's after like 15 years of using tube amps. It's really bizarre. Weird when you can make it sound better than a tube amp but it happens. Okay, right. So I've got a story about the Kemper. So we profiled the amp on the last record and the engineer was convinced that we wouldn't be able to tell the difference and we couldn't when it came to listening. However, when it came to playing within three seconds and the reason being is like for the the style of music I guess I play, which is obviously, apologies, my sugar. <laughs> but... Um, it's a lot of scratches and a lot of like uh, dynamics within the picking. It's a lot of like, you know, imagine heel toe on a kick drum. It's a lot of that. And the Kemper always felt like everything was 127. Right. Okay. It kind of missed that element of it. And that's the only way that I could tell. Right. It didn't have the squishiness of the tubes, you know, the dynamic. You hit harder, you get a bit more gain. But other than that, orally, impossible to tell the difference. It is. You're also a freak, Brown. No, I'm not. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm definitely. You are. I'm definitely stubborn. Let's call me a mule. No. I'm stubborn, but it did sound good. You can say it. You can say whatever you <laughs> want. You're still a freak when it comes to guitar playing, dude. Most people wouldn't notice the the feel difference. I don't have. I don't have the fretboard in my brain though. I want the fretboard in my brain. <laughs> you don't. You don't. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question for you, actually, about um, when you returned to Eval. You started singing. So was that a complete learning curve for you? Yeah. My brother has been the singer since 1999 in our band. And um, when I rejoined, started writing the album because they hadn't done any, any new music in like five years. So I started writing. I finished the album musically within like a year maybe. And then it was a case of waiting for Matt to do the vocals and the lyrics. But we were waiting for about a year and nothing happened. So it got to the point where we knew he was going to leave and he just, we were waiting for it. And then we had the discussion of what are we going to do? And, and I know what metal fans are like when a singer leaves. You know, Sepultura is a prime example. We, we thought the best route to go would be to have a familiar face on vocals. Uh, our bassist, Joel, was not interested. Ben is playing insane thrash drumming. There's no way he's going to do a... Uh, uh, Phil Collins. Uh, so, Spears Mike. Yeah. <laughs> so it was down to me, and it was just a case of, right, I can kind of sing. I can cl sing clean. I can scream. But when I do it the way I do it, I can taste blood in my throat. And that wasn't good. So it's been a case of learning how to do it in a really short space of time. And I'm, I'm working with Melissa Cross now because it's, I need a drastic help. And she's, she's really helped me out. She's, she's amazing. And it's literally just been thrown in the deep end. And, you know, I, I love it. It's great. But it was a case of, shit, it's going to have to be me to do it. So 
it's like half enjoy, half like, oh God, okay. <laughs> Man, that's, I'm kind of impressed just because I could never in a million years bring myself to do that. Uh, I think, I think like 5% of me had always wanted to be like a, a front man, but it was never that, it was never strong enough to make me go, you know what, I'm going to do it. And this just kind of made me go, yeah, fuck it, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing that that was obviously a big learning curve as well when it came to playing the songs and singing at the same time. No, it wasn't because I've, I've been playing for so long and doing backing vocals. I had that, um, that, that switch between voice and guitar where I'm thinking, right, I'm playing this rhythm and then singing this rhythm. The only problem I have is rhythms that are counter to the vocals okay yeah so we have one song the riff goes something like but the vocals go and that's no no i still don't know how matt did that so i'm just stuff like that is not very fun How do you go about learning that kind of stuff? Do you have a method? The way I'm doing it is to literally switch off and just not think about it because I'm I'm okay on the guitar. I don't have to worry about that. I'm okay on the vocals, but it's the in-between. So I try to just forget about the guitar and concentrate on singing. And it kind of works, but I've only been doing it, what, six months, eight months? So I'm just learning. (laughs) God, that would stress me the hell out, man. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) playing and singing at the same time just sounds horrible yeah like we have not even done backing vocals in our band and that's between all of us between the bass player two guitar players we refuse to do it because it's just too weird like to switch between trying to concentrate on this like guys that can play guitar solos and sing at the same time in a different rhythm freak me out like Zach Wilde. Yeah, it freaks me the fuck out. Yeah. I just don't know what the fuck they're doing. It's yeah. like a drummer with their four limbs. You know, like some drummers, they're doing things that you can't comprehend, especially in the jazz world. Um, Mike Mangini. Of course, yeah, exactly. Guys like him. Um, people like Matt Gartska from Animals as Leaders. Anomalies. It's like, I don't understand what you're doing. Like, I'm listening to it and I don't, I just can't comprehend what's going on it's the same with that someone playing a guitar solo while singing uh, a melody because it's kind of like you're doing three or four things at the same time um but your brain's trying to separate itself it yeah, yeah. My, my brain hurts thinking about it right now to be honest <laughs> it hurts hearing about it <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i just can't understand that i think that some people have the ability to do that almost like some people are ambidextrous yeah. And some people don't. And you can kind of learn how to be ambidextrous to a point. But I think, man, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like either you have the pre-built ability to do two separate things at the same time or you don't. The The end. Yeah, pretty much. And you can get better at it, of course. So it impresses me when I meet someone who has that ability because it just seems so foreign to me. It's like people that drive cars. Like you have normal people, you have the really bad car drivers, and then you have the race car drivers. (laughs) And I'm at the bottom end of the pile when it comes to trying to sing along (laughs) and do two tasks at once. Remind me never to let you drive me. I'm I'm all right driving. (laughs) 
Okay, so I think this is a good place to end the episode, Mr. Alt Drake. I want to thank you for hanging out, coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, guys. Anytime. Thank you, man. That was fun. I enjoyed chats. Yes. And the fretboard in his mind and how that helped him with understanding intervals is so, so crucial that I relate to that so much. And it made such a massive difference in my musicianship to be able to understand intervals the way he's talking about. See, I don't see the fretboard in my brain thing, but understanding the intervals and what they sound like is probably the most important information that you can really gain as a musician because it gives you the understanding of what um, what chord sequences you like, just as an example, what you like within a certain scale or a certain yep. key. It gives you, it's like a language with words. Like once you learn a new word, you know what that word means. And that's exactly what you do by learning the intervals. You find what intervals work within a certain key, and then you can add that to your vocabulary, your musical vocabulary. Yeah, and it helps you understand music in a way that takes you beyond the limits of just playing. Yes, it gives you um, an understanding of where to explore when you want a certain sound um, or you hear something from a piece of music and it could be from anywhere. It could be walking down the street, something's playing from the shopping center or something. And you hear a chord sequence that really sparks some inspiration. By understanding those intervals, you'll be, you're able to replay that back when you get back to wherever your guitar is or and you can actually actively play it because you know what the sound of which interval is. Yeah, it's seriously one of the most powerful, helpful things you can possibly do for your guitar playing and musicianship. Pretty much how Beethoven would have done it with when he went deaf. Yeah, it. Uh, I, I can't recommend it enough. I don't know if people still work on it or not. I think that guitar players have a tendency not to. It was... They've always had a tendency not to. So I don't actually know that many people who worked on it back in the day either. No, but it was brought to me because of music in school. It's a big part of classical training, along with timbre sounds and understanding instruments. It was kind of always lumped in the same one with interval training. But I remember we used to have whole lessons where the teacher would literally play a random note on the piano and then play another one and ask us what the interval was. Yeah, man, that kind of training, I really urge everybody listening to find a way to really train intervals. So maybe just buy the Berkeley Sight singing books and learn them on guitar. <laughs> I mean, find a way is what I'm saying. I mean, one example that I always do is to have like, because I play in drop tunings a lot. So I've got two strings, obviously, that are the same note, which is my, if I was in a six string in drop D, I'd have my low D and then my medium D. Let's go for medium. It's medium. So then I'd be able to have a drone. And then at that point, if you've got a drone note, you can actually hear what the intervals are between your drone note and the interval. And it gives you a sense of what's achievable in that sound. So, you know, if you play a minor third against the root, it has a particular sound. Play the major third and that also has a sound. Um, so it's really useful even just to do something like that. Absolutely. Another thing that he talked about that I think is super important, which uh, I know you can learn more about on riffhard.com, is understanding subdivisions yeah. inside and out. And how they feel. And how they feel. Yeah. I feel like um, a lot of guitar players just approximate feel. Yeah. They'll play things thinking that 
they're playing things a certain way, but not really know whether they are or aren't. And then it leads them to not play a riff the same way twice or not actually be able to lock in with their drummers or not being able to actually double themselves properly. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of ways where this lack of understanding and lack of precision translates into a uh, basically shittier <laughs> musical experience on earth. You actually spoke about this in a previous episode when you'd get guitar players in the studio and when it came to playing their solos, there'd be runs in there that wouldn't musically <laughs> fit. Yeah, that wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, and obviously if it was played in a certain way, you could probably get it to fit. Like, so obviously a subdivision of a bar is by how many you want it to be but it also depends against what's behind it whether or not it works oh, yeah they weren't playing quintuplets because it was a decision no they just <laughs> no they they just wrote too many notes in the bar because they sucked yes yeah it's bad it's very play. different <laughs> it's very different but if they understood subdivisions there would have been a way to make that fit is what i'm saying absolutely right what is it on riff hard that can help people get better at this, I believe, something in the pre-workout, right? Yeah, we actually have a exercise where you switch between each of the subdivisions. And in the example we give, it's from quarter notes through to 16th notes. So that's quarter notes, eighth notes, eighth note triplets, and then 16th notes, which covers a majority of the basis. It doesn't have the dotted notes in there, but that is, you know, Everyone knows the dotted note. It's like, dun, 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 you know, which you could add in as well. But the quarter note to the 16th notes gives you a good scope into what of each of the subdivisions feels like. And then everything from there is based on, dependent on what tempo you're going to be at. I mean, I don't think I want to do 32 notes at 250 beats per minute. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think so. Yeah. Also, understanding the bar, yes, I mean, where you're at against that is hugely important, and we have a lot more stuff to help you with that. Definitely, like one of the main problems that guitar players have is feeling the beats of the bar that maybe they're not used to. So a lot of the exercises in the down picking gym will focus on either accent points or rest points for those weird beats of the bar line like the the off beats basically and as well as the beats um it just gives you more of an understanding on how to feel certain parts of the bar when they are accented or not accented or rested a very good exercise and also one that can make you go crazy i'm sure you remember when we filmed that ar when i was doing it oh yeah <laughs> how, how could i forget yes and um it gets particularly interesting when you start randomizing it so one of the exercises, I got Nick to write down some random numbers between one and seven because we were in seven, eight over four, four for this particular example. And then I would accent that number in that particular exercise, which was constantly building new muscle memories in different fields into my vocabulary, which was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it is awesome. And I also remember how horrifying it was. <laughs> how many takes was it? It was a few. A few days worth. Ah, it wasn't a few days on one exercise. Come on. Man, I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was years ago. It was years ago. Yeah, it's hard to believe it was 2017. Yeah, it's a long time ago. Yeah, it was, yeah. But very fun and it definitely helped me. And the good thing about that is you can always make it 
different. You just change the numbers. Yeah, exactly. Constantly learning. Rivhard.com. Check out the down picking gym. All right, Brown. It's been a pleasure. Been a pleasure. I'll see you next week, mate. Thanks for listening to the Rivhard podcast. We'll see you next week.